All right, back on the Young Turks. Let's go to our guests. Joining me now is Mike Wassenaar. He's the president of Alliance for Community Media and is a very important ruling that we want to talk about that could affect media in your neck of the woods. Mike, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you, Cenk, it's good to be, good to be here. Uh, no problem, Mike. Uh, first of all, what's the Alliance for Community Media? Well, the Alliance for Community Media is an association of community media channels across the country. We are public educational and government access channels uh, on cable systems. Uh, very often nonprofits, sometimes local governments, sometimes based in uh, educational institutions and colleges. Uh, Devoted to non-commercial content creation at the local level. So um, cable access uh, where you might see uh, some local uh, proceedings like city council, etc. Uh, That's right. Uh, it, it's, it's small town television in a lot of places around the country. Um, so you'll see local and county uh, government uh, meetings taking place. But you'll also see uh, local high school sports, uh, community events. Uh, performances, uh, local discussion, local authors. It's kind of the the, the, the last best bastion, bastion of, of local content you see, um, rather than having um, you know uh, media channels that come from New York, Los Angeles, other places around the country. That's all well and good. But if you're in some place in Nebraska or New Hampshire and you want to actually see what's going on in your community, uh, it's typically on that channel. Right, and look, this one's personal for me because of two things. First, the fun one. Uh, when I was in high school, I played football, and, and so they carried the local high school football games. We all loved it. We got to see ourselves on television. We had reporters and announcers saying, "Oh, Sank Weiger, he'll hit anybody." That was that was a ton of fun. So, and you know what so, other thing that it did? It brought our community together. So here's the thing that's important about that. It's not just you. It's it's still relatively rare for someone to be on television in America. I mean, I know that sounds weird to think about since television has been in our homes since the 1950s. But the idea of someone creating content that then gets distributed out, or rather, let's say you're in a, a community that is often misrepresented in the mainstream media. The idea of seeing yourself and having your story told is still unique in America. So that's that's that community power that you're talking about, and so it's not just you know, uh, you know, hitting that pass uh, with high school sports, uh, but it's it's being able to tell your story if you're in a community that's often misrepresented. I, I was in the Twin Cities for many years. Uh, I worked with Somali uh, uh, Minnesotans. Um, they're a community that I think is being attacked right now here in 2019, um, and they're a community that is devoted to telling their own story. And having their history be known for other Minnesotans, and they do that through community television. Um, so that's sort of the, an, empower, an, an empowering moment and, and, and a, an important thing for us to remember about the mission of, of access television is that we're trying to make sure that media actually looks like the communities that we're supposed to be serving. So we're going to talk about what the government is doing wrong in a second. But one, one last story about how it's personal to me. This one's actually important. I started on in media on cable access. It was a show originally called The Young Turk because back then it was just me, and and I it was Channel Thirty Three in Arlington, Virginia, and it provided an opportunity for a different voice. And it turns out that a lot of people did eventually want that voice. But if it, I had to just rely on normal television or radio, that voice probably would have never gotten out. And and there are other great people who work here, like Malcolm Fleshner, also had a show there, another different voice. I remember there was a transgender show, and and this was back in the 1990s, mid 90s, and people would snicker, etc. But you know what it did? It planted a seed, and eventually that blossomed, and it would have never made it onto traditional press. 
And now we have so many more people who understand the plight of the LGBT community. And that's all because of cable access. So of course, something this good, the government's gonna wanna kill off. Well, <laughs> I, I think it's this question of, of local control and local voice that I think can be very, very threatening uh, to authority. I, I think the other thing that we should just recognize here uh, is that um, um, people with power uh, want to just consolidate power or alternatively make more money. So in the case of this FCC action that we're talking about, uh, I, I think the, the end game, uh, if you will, for the cable industry is to try to find ways to squeeze local governments so that they give up the channels so that they can then sell more advertising on yet another classic golf channel or some other type of uh, shopping channel that they own, manipulate, and control. So it's really at the end of the day about just trying to squeeze squeeze more pennies out of consumers and, and uh, reduce the diversity of local voice across America. Yeah, and by the way, it works because it you know it's how people say oh cable access uh, sometimes in the uh, now this is a long time ago so a lot of people probably don't even remember Wayne's World and they would make those kind of references. But the reality is, I remember when we did the shows, everybody in Arlington knew it. <laughs> right. See, I think that's a, that's an important distinction, Cenk. I mean, it's easy to ridicule someone who wants to be creative and connect with other people. I mean, and I think that's the 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 the, the problem with that Wayne's World stereotype is that there's a desire that people have in this country to connect with one another. It's legitimate, and it's it's a desire that's not being met by our media systems. So the idea that you know um, a funny looking kid like you or me uh, can get involved in, in media, create media that's important for uh, the communities that we're a part of, the neighborhoods that we're a part of, um, and, and not necessarily be you know, um, a network anchor. We didn't, that's not really the goal of a lot of the work that, that happens. The goal of the work that happens on these channels is to make sure that local neighbors have a chance to understand what's happening in their world and get information that's important to them. And I think build the human potential that people have in their communities. That's your story, and we see that multiplied in communities across the country. Yeah, and, and I thought, what a wondrous place America is, that you could even get your own TV show. It's just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard at that point. So now let's talk about the present day. So uh, what is the FCC doing that could endanger all this? Well, the FCC is trying to redefine what a franchise fee is. Um, uh, since 1984, communities across the country have been able to enter into contracts for the use of public property, um, cable franchises. And in return for cable companies being able to use public property to be able to make money, if you will, um, there's a rent that gets paid, that franchise fee. Congress intended that those franchise fees be monetary, that you get a certain uh, percentage of, of revenue going back for maintenance of streets and, and also the capacity to be able to work on those cable systems. And they also set aside cable channels if communities wanted to use them. Now, this FCC under Agit Pai ha has wanted to redefine uh, what a franchise fee is to ensure that communities get less monetary support. That, that monetary support is capped by Congress at 5% of gross revenue. So if a cable company can come up with um, you know, a, a monetary value that they can charge back in a hidden fee, they can take money away from local communities uh, if they have channels operating. And that's, I think, the, the great danger that we see from this order uh, is that it opens the door for very, very large corporations with very, very large legal staffs to basically bully small towns across the country that don't have the taxing ability to be able to, to backfill you know, $5,000, $6,000, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 that a cable company might suddenly claim is, 
is a hidden fee that they're charging back against the franchise. Um, so it's it's a way to be able to put um, uh, extreme pressure on local government that can't react. So when you say public property, uh, people might not understand what that what you mean by that. What do you mean the cable cha- uh, networks are using public property? So you know the, the streets that you walk on are public. They're they're not private. Uh, the the the, the, the sidewalk you walk on is not private, that's public. We have to be able, in many instances, either to, to dig up the streets to be able to lay, lay fiber in our communities, or and alternatively, you've got to be able to have uh, uh, access to poles and, and be able to make pole attachments. So what typically happens is a company will sign a master contract to have the right to be able to cross public property to get to your house or to get to your apartment building to be able to make money. Um, so it's it's a it's a way to make sure that there's some some order uh, rather than chaos with the use of that public property. I mean, so in 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 no small way are we talking about sort of giving local rights to property away to corporations with this kind of order. So look, I, I know you want to be nonpartisan, but we have to be fact based here. So uh, how did the FCC vote break down along party lines? So it was a three-two vote. The Republican appointees all voted for this because they believe that local governments are criminal agencies that they want to get rid, in some cases, of of community channels or in other instances they think that basically uh, local governments are just lining their pockets um, because you know uh, they're in the interest of shaking down corporations uh, like Comcast or Charter. Exactly. Uh, the two dissenting votes were Democrats. Uh, they were concerned about the diversity of media in America, as well as the application of law in this instance. You know, the, the law that was written in 1984 had been uh, abided by for 35 years. Local governments and cable companies were able to put contracts together for their operation uh, w- without, you know, without disputes in, in many instances. So suddenly with a, a new majority in the FCC, you see basically contracts that exist basically being disrupted. Um, and if this order, uh, this order will can be published in say a week or two, by mid-September to the end of September, you'll actually see local governments start to get notices. I think from cable companies that say that you know the rent is due, that they need to be paid back uh, for uh, things Jesus. like uh, institutional networks to libraries and fire stations. I mean, so for example, the city of New York uh, has a has a really pretty deep concern that they will be over the barrel and not be able to. Uh, react financially to what will be a demand letter suddenly for fiber connections to all public buildings in New York City. What's that dollar amount going to look like? I mean, so this is actually a pretty bad instance where you have, I think, um, a Republican majority that likes uh, subsidizing um, uh, corporations and picking on local government. And you see this sort of like over and over again in the rulings that have happened in the last three years with this FCC. Yeah. And, and I know you don't want to get political, uh, but the, the one thing that Americans typically have control about when it comes to telecom policy in the FCC is that the president of the United States has the right to appoint a chair. So whoever is president in 2021 will appoint the next chair of the FCC. And the chair of the FCC determines a great deal about the agenda when it comes to telecom policy, whether it be local media, uh, these channels that we're talking about, Cenk, net neutrality, uh, other other issues across America. So the 2020 election does matter when it comes to telecom policy. And I'm not gonna tell you how to vote, but I can give you a hint. Yeah, well, it's in the in the, in the voting record, obviously. And so, uh, Look, we, we, we gotta go, but uh, I'm glad that the Republicans 
have finally done you know, uh, the brave thing of standing up for poor multinational billion dollar corporations. I mean, they, they're so downtrodden in, the, in this world and finally somebody's here to stick up with them. But Mike, before we let you go, uh, is there anything people can do right now? Well, right now, people can contact their local governments to see what they can do to help out. In some instances, if you have contact with a local media center, a public educational government access center, contact them because they actually may need to have financial support in the, the coming months. Um, we're actually talking with a lot of the channels across the country to, just to, to figure out ways that they can strategically survive if there's a legal battle that takes place when this order goes forward. Uh, because we're gonna be seeing increased financial pressure on both local government as well as the nonprofits, like you know the one you talked about in Arlington, that do that work. So if you care about local media, contact that local PEG operation, that public educational government access operation, and see if you can help. And the website is allcommunitymedia.org. All right, allcommunitymedia.org, it's great to be here, Cenk. Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, uh, when we come back, uh, an author claims that there are no know-it-alls on the internet, but he hasn't met me yet. All right, back on the Young Turks, time for a super fun interview. Uh, joining me now is Michael Patrick Lynch. He's author of Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, Michael, you're against know-it-alls. Uh, normally, I would agree with you, uh, except there's uh, one important exception, me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, me too, buddy. Uh, <laughs> no, write about what you know. Hey, yeah. Um, so I am actually going to make a little bit of an argument about that in a second, because I literally did a show in Miami called Know It All. Um, <laughs> that was the actual title. Okay, so, but Michael, first let's get to our agreements. You lay out the problem, and then we'll we'll discuss both the overall issue and some parts where I actually do have a little bit of a bone to pick. So why is there more of a know-it-all society today than there has ever been? I think it really comes down to a toxic mix of human psychology, technology, the way we use our social media platforms, and that's certainly new, and the, a political ideology that's feeding off of this combination of technology and psychology. I think that the particular ideology that it's most prominently using this toxic mix is right now on the right. But in the book, I talk about the fact that this is a human problem. I mean, look, the, the issue here is that we're living at a time in which of incredibly unsettled norms, not just democratic norms, but norms of evidence of what counts as a fact. And you would think normally that in unsettled times, people might be more cautious about what they think. But what actually we're seeing is something of the reverse. And part of that is due to the fact that finding, having strength of your convictions is something that is very, very rewarding to all of us as human beings. And in addition to that, we're attracted to people who claim that they know that they have the secret of the universe figured out. Um, and I think that that uh, sort of reward and that attraction can really feed into, as I said, the tendency of some politicians right now, and particularly the resident of the White House, to uh, tell people that, look, just never mind the, the facts, 
just follow what I say because we know and they don't. This is a politics, not so much as us versus them, but it's a celebration of a politics us of us over them. And I think it's um, a really dangerous phenomenon that we're seeing right now, yeah. uh, not just in the US, but across the globe. So of course I agree with that. And uh, when it comes to celebrating facts and research, etc., uh, I'm awesome at it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're, you're, you're of course absolutely right. And but so let's have fun and let's get the disagreement because look, sure. Michael's the director of Humanities Institute and professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. He's even got a medal for research excellence. So that's the kind of arrogant guy I am that I'm going to challenge him nonetheless. Um, so Michael, the problem though is that we have a mainstream media that normalizes everything and equates everything. So it's not that they're not, they don't point out Trump's faults, they do. Which I'm encouraged by because in the past they have not pointed out the faults of Obama or George W. Bush or Dick Cheney or Mitch McConnell or Pelosi nearly enough. Uh, but still, there's this instinct to call everything even. Uh, and that's actually counterfactual. And so oftentimes one side is more right than the other and and has access to more facts and information and is correct. So I'm worried about saying, hey, nobody's a know-it-all. Because no, especially in today's America, one side clearly knows better than the other. Look, the thing about arrogance, which is what I'm talking about, is that it's attractive because it gives you the feeling of knowledge without real knowledge. So what I'm, what I'm talking about is not somebody who actually knows a lot of stuff. I mean, lots of people do know things. You know a lot of stuff. I just, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I seem to know some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Tuesdays and Thursdays, I, can, I forget it completely. But the point is not about expertise or people who have command over the facts. I mean, if you think about just the way we ordinarily use the term, a know-it-all is somebody who confuses their concern for their ego with truth. And what's the phenomenon I'm interested in is when that exam, that sort of phenomenon, that personal psychological phenomenon goes global or tribal, where we start to say, well, our side, our particular uh, ideology is, is right in claiming this particular, uh, making this particular judgment uh, just because we're making it not because the evidence supports it. So I think I'm actually completely in agreement with you that a lot of the problem right now in the media is they aren't actually often challenging, I think, uh, uh, the the factual claims or misfact, the, uh, the lack of factual claims that are being made uh, elsewhere in the internet. And they're also sometimes, I think that some of the problem is remaining silent about what, what are actually the true causes or the root phenomena that's going on, including, for example, I think uh, it's only in the last few 24 hours or so that I think people have really started to come out and, and say clearly that the shootings over the weekend were done out of an ideology, an ideology that claims to pe tells people that uh, we know, in fact, that there are caravans coming, that there are immigrants crossing the border, there is an invasion. This is an ideology that is rooted in a, in, a, in a sense that we know the facts as they are. When in fact, it's not really based on any sort of 
factual information at all. So arrogance is a confusion of ego and truth. I don't think it's really uh, uh, a concern for truth at all. The, the know-it-all cons- is concerned with themselves, not with the facts. Right. So look, putting getting aside, um, you, would I be arrogant about physics? Absolutely not. I, I'm actually pretty bad at physics. Um, and so that's the the last thing I would be is to claim that I know everything about physics. And if see, and that's exactly what you get with Donald Trump. He he keeps saying, and we even ran a clip once about how no one knows more than me and just fill in the blank. He said it about 80 different things. And of course, none of it is true. My particular expertise happens to be politics. So I I, I wouldn't back down from saying, yes, I have greater knowledge than pretty much every Republican in the country. Uh, okay, but that's because that's my job, and we're pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but I want to know how we get past these things because you can't throw up your hands and say, "Well, nobody knows anything." No, climate scientists do know better than non-climate scientists, and ninety-nine percent of the climate scientists agree that climate change is real and it's man-made. That is super relevant, right? So you can't go to the scientists and go, "Oh, Mister Know It All." Yeah, that's kind of their job to know that, right? Uh, and at the same time, you know, you're right that there's this enormous phenomenon, very much buttressed by Donald Trump, that don't worry about the facts. If I say it, it's true. That's it. That's all you need to know. So how do we how do we figure out if you're online, and especially maybe especially so if you're a progressive, because it's so hard to get through the knucklehead Republicans. But how do you make sure you don't fall into that same trap of arrogance? Well, here's one one thing I would suggest right off the bat. We haven't talked about technology right now. I've branched it briefly, but I think one thing we really all got to get better at, and that includes uh, we progressives, um, is that we need to be able to realize what we're doing when we're engaging with each other online about the politics of the day. A lot of time, you know, when I let me take an example, I share something. Some news story, something that I've read in The Guardian, for example. So I, I share it online. And to myself and to my friends, it looks as if what I'm doing, and the reason I'm doing it, is that I want to share some facts, some or at least some interesting article, some piece of information. I'm engaging in a sort of rational discourse with my with my friends, and I'm trying to point out something important to them. In many ways, I am doing that. On the other hand, you know, what do we know about what we do when we share things online. Well, the research tells us that almost no one who shares something online with regard to politics actually reads the thing that they're sharing. Almost no one. (laughs) And uh, of course, you and I do. We read everything, all the sources, all that. We've read everything we've ever shared. But And all the listeners, of course, are like that. But there are other people that don't read what they share. We've heard about that. Those people actually are the majority of people, and that includes the majority of progressives and conservatives. It's not, there's nothing different politically as far as the current research is telling us. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that really part of what we're doing when we're interacting with each other online is actually expressing our emotions. We're, we're signaling to each other that we're part of the same group. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But you know what is wrong? What's problematic is when we don't know that's what we're doing. When we think what we're doing is just sort of sharing information factually, but often what we're doing is just engaging in a sort of a sort of an expression of outrage or an attempt to try to signal to each other that, hey, you know, I'm on your team too. 
And that that sort of lack of knowledge about what we're really doing when we're online can sometimes be taken advantage of. And that includes those of us on the left. I mean, in the, in the 2016 election, this sort of lack of knowledge of what we're actually doing online was something that was we now know very much taken advantage of by state actors and people wanting to corrupt our political system. I'm talking yeah. about, of course, uh, Russian, the Russia, Russians and not just the Russians. Um, Cambridge yeah. Analytica. Yeah. You know, the thing is uh, that when you don't know what what game it is you're playing, when you think that what you're doing is playing in a game of like reason and fact, but really what you're doing is playing a different game that has the rules of the water cooler or the playground, that's when you can be taken advantage of. And that's something that I think everybody, including progressives, really need to pay attention to. Yeah, so again, here I'm a bit of an exception, but only because if I tweet something out and I haven't read every word in it and there's something wrong in the 37th paragraph, I will take all of the blame. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I have to be again, but again, that's because of what you do for a living, right? right. Yeah, you, you, this is what you do for a living. Most of us uh, don't do what you do for a living, and most of us, including myself, couldn't do what you do because we don't have your knowledge. And uh, there we go. Now we're getting it right. Now I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, guys, the one look, the most important takeaway, I think, uh, and and check out Michael's book. It's called Know It All Society. Uh, so uh, read it for yourself and, and and get a sense of it. But is even if you think you're right, make sure you're double checking the facts uh, because look, I've changed my mind politically a thousand times throughout my life, and I started out as a Republican. Here I am, one of the yeah. more progressive guys in the country. And the only way to do that is if you have access to information, facts, and knowledge. So even if you think you're right, make sure you double check and always look at the facts first. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Okay, guys, uh, we're gonna take a quick break. For all you members, uh, maybe the fireworks start early when Hassan Piker joins me on the uh, post game. We're gonna have a two hour debate tomorrow, uh, but a little preview for you guys when we come back, if you're a member. So tyt.com slash join to become a member. We'll see you there.